0: This is um, really the beginning of the end for Pharaoh and his rule over Israel and slavery. So I'm going to read chapter 7 in its entirety here. Chapter 7, starting in verse 1. I'm going to continue to use the word Yahweh, where the word in all caps, Lord, is used. Just to, again, highlight the personal Holy war that God has against Pharaoh here. Seven verse one. And Yahweh said to Moses, see, I have made you like Pharaoh to God, like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron Aaron did so. They did just as Yahweh commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, you then shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent." So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as Yahweh commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, as he is going out into the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, Yahweh... And Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, over their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as Yahweh commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. As Yahweh had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after Yahweh had struck the Nile. Gracious Father, give us ears to hear your word. May the unfolding of your word give light, may be a light to our path may it illuminate our hearts and show us the the greatness, the forbearance, the power of you, Lord, and how you demolish false hopes and false trusts, idols, in order that we may see you as the only true living Savior. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, the scene is is set. Uh, Moses and Aaron have now come to Pharaoh, and Yahweh is getting ready to deliver Israel with a mighty hand. And a mighty deliverance it will be. Yahweh is going to completely humiliate the most powerful empire in that day through a series of what he calls signs and wonders and judgments. We typically say 10 plagues. There's actually more than just the 10 plagues. If we count the staff to serpent, miracle, and then also the Red Sea crossing, we're actually looking at 12 signs and wonders. And these are signs and wonders which do two things. And we'll see this throughout chapters 7 through 12. Yahweh alone is God. There are no other gods but Yahweh. In in the big picture, if I wanted to repeat a sermon for the next several weeks, it, it would simply be covering the same message from chapter 7 to chapter 12, and it is this. Yahweh declares himself the only God by the deliverance of his people, and the judgment of his people's enemies. Okay? There's a, there's a three-stranded message. Yahweh wants to be known. Yahweh wants to save. And Yahweh wants to judge those who have been oppressing his people. Okay? We're going to get more into the details, but that's the theme of chapter 7 to chapter 12 of all the plagues all the judgments on egypt to get a little more specific today we're going to find out that these first two signs the staff to serpent and the nile to blood they're specifically aimed at uh, egyptian gods not all the plagues are Uh, these two definitely are and probably the the darkness is as well Uh, but these two signs are it, it's Yahweh picking a fight? <laughs> it's Yahweh picking a fight and saying, "In whom do you trust, Pharaoh? In whom do you trust? Are you going to trust in the serpent God That's, that that symbolizes all of Egypt? Are you going to turn to Happy, the the God of the Nile? In whom are you expecting?" to help you. And, and Yahweh is just going to blast them, <laughs> completely cripple this nation, completely cripple it, not with nuclear bombs, not with, you know, with, but with bugs, <laughs> and a Nile turned to blood, and hailstones, And wonders that Israel would then relay to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation, this is how the great Yahweh saved us when we were in slavery. So so yeah, the big picture from 7 to 12 is that Yahweh wants to make himself known by redeeming people and by judging uh, the evil oppressors. But specifically in seven, God is shattering the powers of darkness and showing himself to be the true, only Savior. He's shattering the powers of darkness, all false gods, all false saviors, and showing himself to be the only true, reliable Savior who's powerful enough and willing enough to save. And I think that we're not well, maybe some of us might be in Pharaoh's shoes here. Most of us as Christians can still readily identify with this because what happens in conversion is God toppling over false trusts, false hopes. When you came to the Lord and you're in that battle of I've heard of Jesus, I heard he saves, I heard he's even willing to save a wretch like me, back and forth, back and forth. You were no doubt thinking, but what about this other hope? What about my own merit, my own righteousness? Or what about this person? That person's not as bad. Whatever it was, you were trying to ferret out, are there other hopes? Are there other trusts Simply put, are there other ways to get around God's simple ultimatum? And as you were called by God and he was showing you yourself, showing you himself, one by one, he was knocking those trusts down, knocking those other hopes down. And eventually you can realize, no, God is the only one. Christ is the only one who will save. There are powers of darkness in this world. Idols aren't things you always light a candle to. An idol is anything we trust. What can get me out of this jam? What will deliver me out of this problem? Or speaking very simply, as the Bible says, what can save me from my sin? And an idol doesn't have to be a statue, doesn't have to be something you bow down to, doesn't have to be something you light a candle to. An idol is anything in which you trust. It might be your own righteousness. It might be in comparing yourself to someone you think is worse than you. (laughs) The old old Hitler ploy. (laughs) An idol is what you trust. And... God is powerfully just blasting these false idols of Egypt. And he does the same in our life. He does the same in our life too. So first, before we get into the staff to serpent and the Nile to blood, God gives Moses one last word of encouragement. You all know the story. It's kind of getting redundant. Moses has been scared. He's been overwhelmed, rightfully so. You don't just prance into the Pharaoh's courtroom and think that, you know, you're hot stuff. He has told God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I'm the wrong man. I'm of uncircumcised lips. I'm not not the right guy. I don't want to do it. (laughs) And Pharaoh, excuse me, God says to Moses one last time, no, let me, let me help you understand, Moses. I will set you before Pharaoh as a God. I mean, if there's any lingering doubt in Moses' mind of, I don't know if God can actually use me, Surely what God says in verse 1 takes the cake. It puts everything to bed, everything to rest. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. What would you do if God actually said that to you? But this obviously falls right after chapter six and Moses' last excuse of, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. Actually, no, you're not. You're a man of Levitical descent. You're perfectly tailor-made for this call. So what does it mean to be made like God? Well, certainly Moses is not God. Certainly God has not transferred some deity to Moses. But he is God in the sense of he is now the judicial representative of Yahweh bringing a divine subpoena to Pharaoh. He is serving him pre-judgment papers and saying, you're done. That's what Elohim, whether it's used for Yahweh or if it's used for men and angels, powerful men, if it's used for powerful men and angels, it refers to a judicial emissary. And so when God says, I've made you like God, Moses is not actually God, but he has clothed Moses with the power and authority to do what Yahweh will do through him, namely, judge Pharaoh, and bring these judgments on him, which means... The 10 plagues, or the 12 signs, including the staff, the serpent, and the Red Sea, the verdict's already been given. The verdict of Pharaoh's guilt has already been handed down by God. We read this for, for chapters on end, and sometimes we wonder, like, why don't you turn, Pharaoh? why don't you stop didn't you realize after the first one that when Aaron's staff gobbled up your staffs you're out of your league (laughs) didn't you get it then (laughs) why don't you turn or or we we might say why doesn't God do the first the last plague at first and not have to humiliate everybody along the way why is God doing this what the way he is well, there are a lot of answers for all those things, but namely, God is the, the, the ten plagues are already a decisive verdict on Pharaoh. Pharaoh and his pharaohs before him have been persecuting, oppressing, and enslaving Israel for 400 years. And God says, Now you're judged. And there's no going back. You are now judged you will receive all the judgments. And even though I bring these judgments, your heart will remain unmoved, recalcitrant, stubborn, heavy, hard-hearted. And to which case, you know, Pharaoh's hard heart, whether it's Yahweh hardening Pharaoh's heart, or Pharaoh hardening his own heart, as it says, or it'll say a third way throughout these chapters, Pharaoh's heart became hard. All three ways point to and refusing to acknowledge Yahweh as the supreme Lord even later on when Pharaoh says, oh, oh, okay, okay, I get it, I get it. Like, you can go, go worship, just don't go too far, but you gotta leave the little ones. (laughs) Or, okay, you can go, but don't go too far out there and come right back. Every time the plagues relent and they end, he hardens his heart again and Yahweh says, he hasn't learned. (laughs) He has not learned. And I mean, we're not gonna kid ourselves. It does it does present for the Christian a, an interesting dilemma. How do we talk about God's sovereignty over the heart and our own culpability of our own actions? Well, I know we've talked about Pharaoh's hard heart in, in previous sermons because it's been mentioned many times. I just want to give another layer, another kind of layer of quote that I think is helpful as we keep thinking of this. When God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, he is assisting Pharaoh in what he wants to do. We, we, we sometimes think Pharaoh is, um, he's a puppet, and, and Yahweh is the divine puppeteer, and he's just moving Pharaoh along and taking pleasure in this in some sadistic way. Not at all. Pharaoh, from the very get-go, has says, I don't know Yahweh. You're staying here. (laughs) You're making my bricks. You're going to work for me. You're enslaved to me. That That is Pharaoh's MO. That has been his purpose the whole time. And now Yahweh is basically strengthening his resolve to continue that through, despite the judgments that are there. One guy says it this way, When the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, he did not override Pharaoh's will in one important respect. Exodus gives no sign that Pharaoh longed to submit to Yahweh as his sovereign and was prevented from doing so. There's no sign at all in Exodus, the Bible, that Pharaoh just wished Yahweh would become his god. There were rebukes, explanations and commands that imply Pharaoh had an opportunity to submit but he did not. Rather, the Lord gave Pharaoh the strength to do what he wanted to do. Keep Israel in. And thus all these judgments came. It's not an easy thing to talk about. I think it's hard a dilemma, but we do know this. Pharaoh's a wicked man. He's not he's not a neutral guy. He hates Israel. He has been enslaved in Israel for for years and the Bible constantly uses Pharaoh and Israel's time in Egypt as a metaphor for Satan. Pharaoh's wicked through and through. And when God decides to judge him, the judgments are just. Anyone Anyone could come to the Lord. God would receive any. But Pharaoh wouldn't have it. And this actually is then the most devastating judgment of all. Not the Nile, not even the firstborn. That God has sovereignty over the human heart. His sovereignty reaches the human heart. The the proud are going to say, how dare God? What about my free will? What about my own decisions? Yeah, that's real. You do have a will. And you do need to choose God as your Savior. But the humble would say, God has sovereignty over a heart. Take my heart, Lord. I see that it is wicked. If you are truly Lord and you can deal with my wicked heart, take it, purify it, cleanse it. It's yours. Remove it. And give me a heart of flesh that loves you. God will do that. We we get so mixed up with this. There are mysteries beyond our comprehension, but there is one thing that is not a mystery. God can solve the human heart. What is the what is the heart of the matter? The matter is the heart. (laughs) The heart is the matter. We don't want to trust in God. We would rather trust in anybody but God. But God does graciously just hem us in eventually when we say, I see it. Thank you, Lord. You are the only Savior, you are the only hope for mankind. Christ is the only Messiah. So moving on from F- Moses' encouragement and and the hardening of the heart there in verses one to eight, we now get into the two the two major signs um, I just titled this one: "Pharaoh's serpent is gobbled up." Uh, goes down with a big burp he Pharaoh has his servants and they get swallowed up. If that is not a picture of defeat, I don't know what is. So Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh's palace in verses 9 to 14, and he commands Aaron to take his staff and turn it into a serpent, throw it down, they'll become a serpent. This, this is a different miracle than when God told Moses to do the same for Israel. Remember that? A few chapters ago, Yahweh said, "Go, Moses, go to the elders of Israel, throw your staff down, it's going to become a serpent. And they're going to believe you. And they did believe. Now this is Aaron's staff. And when he throws it down, it's going to become a serpent. Or not. This is really interesting. The Hebrew word, Nahash, behind the word serpent, um, In the the earlier account, always refers to a snake, a snake or a serpent. Tanin, the word for serpent here, can mean serpent. It can also mean sea monster or great beast. It can mean crocodile. The Egyptians were polytheists, not a whole bunch of gods. They had a god for everything. They even had multiple gods for the same thing, especially fertility and life. Sobek was the name of a crocodile god who was responsible in Egyptian mythology for creating the world. He was the divine creator. And he was also responsible for the swelling rivers of the Nile seasonally that would give life the life-giving creator god I don't know what tanin refers to it could be crocodile in which case god is attacking the god of sobek in the egyptians it could be the serpents the egyptians had many serpent gods in fact the serpent was was a symbol for egypt altogether Egyptians would even carry around amulets so that if they were ever bitten by a snake, which happened to be a deity, these amulets would help them. Magicians would come around and cleanse them and they'd be a-okay from a cobra bite. But there were many serpent gods. There was Apep, the god of chaos and death. There was Renenutet, goddess of fertility and harvest. And there is, this is what i This is what I think is probably being referred to here. There is Wadjit. Wajit was a goddess, was a snake goddess, and and she was affixed to Pharaoh's crown. And she was affixed to Pharaoh's crown with a permanently flared hood, the the, the hood of the cobra, signifying ready to strike at any time. And Wadjit was heavily worshipped in the lower delta region of the Nile where, where they were at the time what's the significance of turning the staff to a serpent or a crocodile it's this God is picking a fight and he's saying okay you want to go <laughs> Your God's versus me pick them Wajit, Apep, Renanuat or excuse me, Renan, Nutet, Sobek. By throwing the staff down, Aaron, Moses, Yahweh, they were saying, your gods are nothing before Pharaoh. Funny enough, Pharaoh and his magicians, actually Pharaoh's magicians, they take their staffs and they throw their staffs down. Now, some would say they actually um, pushed the back of the head of the cobra and it made it rigid. And so when they they dropped it, it would just be stiff, kind of like turning a shark upside down. It just lays there paralyzed. Could be. I, I think this is exactly what it says it is. The powers of Egypt are the powers of the devil. And we know the devil, he messes around. And he has power to do various and mysterious devilish things. So, in my opinion, Pharaoh's magicians turn their staffs into serpents. But then what happens? (laughs) Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Swallowed them up, gulped them down. The swallowing of the opposing staffs is significant in one simple way. God's power is greater than the power of the enemy. His power is greater than the power of the enemy. The power of the devil, sin, death, is powerful. But it's not more powerful than God. It's not more powerful than God legitimate question we have to ask ourselves because the Bible is so clear about this the Bible is very clear that non-christians are in a state of slavery and sin so clear as we as we heard from uh, Ephesians 2 earlier that we were children of wrath and we were following the prince of the power of the air who is at work in the sons of disobedience So the devil is who we were following. He was our disciple maker before we came to Christ. And we're following him and his ways. And he is a spirit working in the sons of disobedience. He's a spirit working in the world and and, and non-Christians in the world altogether. And the Bible is so clear that our state in sin was so bad that a legitimate question is to be asked, can we actually be saved can we actually have the devil's power broken from us? That's how realistic the non-believer is in their sin and how certain they are that when they die, they will not see mercy. So the legitimate question is not, oh, Satan has no power. No, he's got power. He way way outguns us. The, the, The question is, but is God's power greater Is his power greater? Yeah. Swallow him up. Swallow him up. This is a, these are lyrics of a song Moses wrote later on after the Red Sea. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand. The earth swallowed them. What is he referring to? The Red Sea. Gulped them down. How powerful is the enemy? powerful. But he's nothing for, co- nothing for Christ. We have that same theme. Paul says in First Corinthians 15. What does the work of Christ on the cross do for death? It swallows it up forever. We have enemies. Satan, sin, death, but the believer is victorious in Christ because Christ has swallowed up our enemies. He's swallowed up even death itself. Gulp, done. The next God on the list is happy. Happy is going to bleed to death. In verses 14 to 25, we have the miracle of the Nile turning to blood. And Happy H-A-P-I, is the god slash goddess of the Nile. The Nile, along with the serpent gods, was a god of the Egyptians, god of created things. The Nile, just, uh, just naturally, the Nile was highly favored. It gave water to irrigate crops. Gave water to drink. Some would even say that the water of the Nile was more sweet and enjoyable than wine itself. That must be really far upstream. Because, <laughs> like, I don't know if they've seen what's downstream. Like, you watch Discovery and Hippo Dung and all that stuff's in the Nile. It doesn't look very sweet. But nevertheless, they prized the Nile water. It was life. Nile goes away. No Egyptian civilization. Nile's there as it regularly is, and they're, they're a force to be reckoned with. But, so it was important for natural life, but it was also important for supernatural life. When the, when the river would swell from rain and seasonal, seasonal rain, it would become inundated, and the Egyptians would think, believe that it is now the deity happy. And happy was associated with fertility and life giving powers. Happy was artistically construed. I know this is going to sound weird. I wasn't sure if I wanted to include it in my notes, but I thought it would make a point. Artistically designed as a bearded man with female breasts and a hanging stomach signifying pregnancy. Happy was a hermaphrodite, self-sufficient, life-giving God. what did Yahweh proclaim in the burning bush to Moses? I am who I am. And as we walk through that, what did we learn? Yeah, God's eternal. He's powerful. All these things. Most most crucial, most nucleus to that meaning, God is self-sufficient. He needs no other. And now now there's a rival self-sufficient God. Happy. Well, happy wasn't about to be happy for very long. Soon, happy about to be dead. When Aaron struck the Nile, Moses and Aaron struck the Nile, the waters of the Nile turned into blood. Now, some say this is just a natural occurrence. There are algae blooms which cause the water in the Nile to turn red, or because of the swelling and flooding, the the clay of the, of the dirt might actually turn the water red, yeah? In fact, there are naturalistic explanation, explanations for almost all, almost all, of these plagues. And even given the order, the blood, the Nile the blood, the frogs, the gnats that follow, the flies, and a natural evolutionary idea, but it really doesn't hold any water. Not at all. We'll see why later on, but just for the Nile itself doesn't hold any water, no pun intended. Because all the blood of the Nile turned all the water of the Nile turned into blood. Even the stored water away from the Nile. So it says in verse nineteen. Stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals man made canals their ponds, and all their pools of water, which literally in Hebrew means all concentrated water pot, parts, pots, all areas of man-made concentrated parts of water, so that they become blood, and there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. So even water in a cup, Nile's way or far away, even water in a cup would become blood that's not due to any natural explanation. That's due to Yahweh smiting Happy, the gods of Egypt, showing himself to be the only true God and all other so-called gods, false gods. But we have another issue here. The magicians of Egypt, verse 22, did the same by their secret arts. If if the magicians of Egypt were as, uh, well, they weren't too bright. Whatever water was left, they turned into blood as well. If they were actually smart, they would have turned the blood into water. But they don't. So they're as foolish as the enemy. So they turn the remaining water into blood, say, aha, got you, Idiot. You just destroyed our remaining water. (laughs) So they turn their water into blood by the power of the enemy. And then what you have is Pharaoh turning away from the river bank, going to go pout into his palace and the Egyptians digging along the Nile bank for water to drink. Fish die, chaos ensues. And seven full days had passed after the Lord struck the Nile before frogs would then come up. What do we learn about this? Well, we said it earlier, and it's here again in in verse 17 and in verse 5. What is God saying? I am Yahweh. There are no other gods, Pharaoh. And we actually probably need to be told ourselves there's no other one. There's no other God. But Pharaoh alone but but God alone. No Pharaoh, no king, no no happy, no Sobek, no Apep, no anybody, Wajit, can stand before the Lord. They're all so called gods. But but in reality, they're all they're all other options of trust. The devil would love for us to think there are many other options to trust in. God isn't the only other option. There are many options. And that's just not true. Yahweh alone. He wants to be known as the one and only living, true God who is powerful enough to destroy the powers of darkness and willing enough to to dispense mercy. Only Yahweh. Only Yahweh. We might think, we might think it a little silly. How can a, how can a crocodile or a snake or a, a river be a god? Again, idolatry is a matter of trust. It's a matter of trust. What are we trusting in? For the most important decision of your entire life, what are you trusting in? the lies of the enemy would say, there's a pantheon of other gods to trust in. Or, or you can trust in yourself. Or, or literally anything. Just not God. But Yahweh, as he does for Pharaoh, he does for everybody. I'm destroying the other options, guys. There's just me. It's me or nobody. Nobody. I would receive you if you would have it. Our problem is we don't want him. But praise the Lord, his sovereignty of the human heart means he can change our desire to say from going, I don't want you, God, to that's all I want is life. That's all I want. In fact, I don't even care what happens anymore in life. I have Christ. I don't need anything else. That decision and that turning only happens because Yahweh is Yahweh. And there's no other God. We're we're sophisticated, aren't we? We don't believe in idols. We don't have a shrine. We don't light a candle to anything on a on a counter. We don't bow down to anything. What does John close his letter with? Little children flee from idols. We have idols. It's anything in which we trust. What are we trusting in? Now, for the bulk of us here, we have seen... Christ is worthy of that trust. And he has, uh, as the hymn says, he has proven himself over and over again that he is worthy of that trust. I just will close with this. As you have trusted in him once, continue to trust that he is continuing to cripple and crush the powers of darkness. You have remaining sin in you. You don't like it. Others around you don't like it. there is an active devil that grow, 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 growls and prowls around like a roaring lion. He's on the leash. And Christ will one day swallow him up and swallow up death. And all, all the sin in you, all the iniquity, all the pain, all the misery, all the non-good Thus says the Lord, very good to creation things will be gone. All gone. Christ will do that. And he's continuing to knock down those idols, knock down those trusts. And I, and I would just encourage us all, if you don't know Christ, place your faith in Christ. He is the only, only source of life. And secondly, for those of us who, who do know Christ. He's still crippling happy. He's still crushing Sopek. All various so-called gods, so-called powers of darkness, enemies, demons, devils, they're under his perfect kingdom. And as Paul would say in First Corinthians 15, he must reign until all enemies are put under his feet. It means he's reigning now. He's reigning now. Don't, don't let the, the ways of the world, the ways of the culture, maybe the things even in your personal life, cause you to question that Jesus is actively reigning against all powers of darkness. If he relented, it'd be a lot worse. I heard about a mass shooting again this morning. I think in Maryland. Baltimore. Sinful. He's he's crushing the sinful world and he's he's building a new kingdom wherein only righteousness dwells. Only righteousness. And those who come to him will inherit that. Let's pray.